Organic Tomatoes, A Blue Ribbon Murder, Part 1 Marie Robinson awoke to the sound of her husband Earl snoring. His mouth was gaping open and he was flat on his back. As was her 5 a.m. ritual, she rolled him over on his side and tried to go back to sleep on the small slice of bed that she claimed as her own. Winston, Earl's sad-eyed bloodhound, was in the bed between them, taking up more than half of her side of the bed. She lay precariously as the early morning light drifted in through the window, and she tried to fall back to sleep. But Earl had taken to snoring again, and Winston soon followed his master's lead. Disgusted and exasperated, Marie swung her feet out from under the covers and headed down to the kitchen. On her way down the creaky stairs, she cheered herself up with the notion that she would treat herself on such an occasion as her 83rd birthday. She would make coffee in the press, and eggs, and toast, leaving Earl with his weekday oatmeal in the microwave. She put two heaping spoons of beans in the grinder and quickly gave it a spin so as not to leave it so long that Earl and Winston might hear. Next, she placed two slices of bread in the toaster and finally cracked two eggs and started them frying in a pan of butter. In a further act of self-indulgence, she got out a plate from the china cabinet instead of one from the kitchen cupboard. She set it with a cloth napkin just for kicks and placed the matching teacup and saucer with it for coffee. The toast popped up in perfect timing with her eggs as she poured her coffee, just getting ready to sit down. Earl called from the upstairs bedroom. Is that toast I smell? He yelled down. Marie wanted to say something sarcastic, but her determination to keep her birthday spirits high deterred her. Yes, she called back. Come down and join me for some. Marie went out to the china cabinet and retrieved another plate with a matching cup and saucer and brought it to the table. She cracked another pair of eggs into the brown butter of the skillet and added bread to the toaster. By the time Earl and Winston had made it down to the table, everything was ready. Giving him the opportunity to wish her a happy birthday, she noted, This is a very nice way to start off the day, don't you think, dear? Earl ate his dripping eggs with a fork, letting the viscous yolk slide through the tines. He eyed his toast with disdain, though. Marie watched his expression and rolled her eyes. It's plenty dark. Burned, in fact. Earl wrinkled his nose and fed both slices to Winston, saying, It's not burned enough for me. He continued, What setting did you have it on? All the way, of course, just like you like it, Marie said flatly, eating her own lovely, light, yet crispy slices with butter and jam. She sipped her coffee and warily eyed the dog, who was slowly making his way to her side of the table in an attempt to beg. "'Could you make me another?' Earl asked. "'This time, really burn it. I love burned toast.' Marie was beginning to feel hurt at the thought that Earl had forgotten her birthday as she dropped two more slices into the toaster with the setting pushed all the way to the ten mark. Earl cleared his throat. "'By the way, Marie, I'm expecting a package to arrive today. If it comes to the house, will you be sure to let me know?' "'A package?' she asked, her hope of Earl remembering her birthday suddenly rekindled." Yes, I ordered something by mail, and I have been waiting all week for it. What kind of package? Marie asked slyly, as she set down the slices for another turn against the red elements. A sweater, actually, replied Earl. You bought yourself a sweater? Marie asked, shocked. 
Earl hated shopping for clothes. The briquettes popped out of the toaster, and she slathered butter over them, serving him in a second attempt. Earl eyed the smoldering pieces with speculation. It's not for me, silly. Marie suddenly wasn't upset about the stupid toast that her husband was snarling at. She was instead taken aback by his forethought. For once, Earl had planned ahead for her birthday and bought her a sweater at that to be delivered on the day of. She leaned over his shoulder and gave him a kiss on the cheek. Winston bellowed loudly when Earl nearly choked on his coffee in reaction. What was that for? he asked, wiping his cheek ever so slightly. Just because after all this time you're still wonderful, that's all. Earl looked at her reluctantly. And in all these years you've never learned to make toast like my mother. She shrugged and started on the hand washing of the good china. Nothing could break her good mood. Lunchtime brought with it a knock at Earl and Marie's door. Winston bayed loudly at the sound of the delivery person. Marie started to get up from her tomato soup, but Earl sprang to his feet. Rushing to the front of the house, he met the FedEx man and signed for his package. Meanwhile, Marie stayed glued to her seat. She wondered if her luck would end with a thoughtful gift or if he might actually attempt to wrap it before giving it to her. When she couldn't stand the suspense any longer, she abandoned her soup for a peek in the living room. Earl was busy fighting with a thick plastic seal on the bag. Oh, give it to me, you silly. I don't mind opening it with scissors. Be careful, called Earl behind her. I don't want that sweater ruined before it gets worn. Marie smiled and her heart skipped a little beat. He was the old Earl she'd fallen for as a schoolgirl when he was like this. She carefully used the scissors and opened the package as she promised. Earl was already in the kitchen before she could examine the contents of the bag. He took the package from her a little more forcefully than she would have imagined and it startled her. Pulling the contents out of the bag as he walked into the living room, Marie stood in the kitchen, confused. She heard Earl call for Winston, which added to the oddity of the situation. After a long pause, Marie went into the living room and a tiny little gasp trickled over her thin lips. Sitting beside the recliner was Winston, wearing a blue and green striped dog sweater, looking like a sad-eyed frat boy with a hangover. Earl was fishing something out of the bottom of the bag. A smile spread across his face as he found it and handed it to Marie. And this is for you, he announced proudly. Marie stared at her palm with pursed lips as she took in her birthday present. Wound tightly and held together by a rubber band was a dog leash that matched the hideous sweater. I know how you ladies like to have everything match. Imagine how nice you will look when you take Winston out for his walks. If she could have, she would have choked him with the leash. But murder by strangulation took strength and effort. Marie was crushed by her husband's insensitivity, rendering her void of both. Instead, she handed Earl the leash and walked upstairs, returning to bed where she remained for the rest of her 83rd birthday. Part 2. Betty Thibodeau Betty Thibodeau woke early as was her usual custom. She washed her face with hot water and a washcloth. She brushed her teeth as instructed by her dentist. 
She pulled her white strands up into a half-up dew, and she applied moisturizer to her face. When she was finished, she took a rag from the linen closet and the scouring powder and scrubbed the sink and toilet until it shined. Then she dressed. Folding her nightgown, she placed it under her pillow. Her slippers she tucked neatly under her side of the bed. She carried her empty glass of overnight water back to the kitchen where she started the coffee. To the placemats she'd set out the night before, she added forks and knives in symmetrical fashion to the white breakfast plates and cups. Alan Thibodeau came down to breakfast in his white starched shirt and navy blue jacket. His tie was perfect in powder blue. His hair was combed meticulously off to the side in Wall Street fashion. His nails were buffed, his teeth were white. Everything about Alan and his life, including his wife, screamed aloud one prevailing message like a gong chiming. Alan loved cleanliness and order, and he would have his way in the pursuit of the notion. The toaster soon popped, making Betty jump. Even after 52 years of marriage, she'd never relaxed at breakfast time. It was when Alan was the most critical of the day. She quickly buttered the toast and cut it into points. Next, she set his yogurt, granola, and fruit in separate but identical bowls in a straight line before him as he clicked his laptop mouse. Reading The Times online, Alan said, was far better than reading the hard copy. The online version kept his fingers free from the dreaded soy ink. When she'd arranged everything, she sat down with her cup of coffee and took a sip. She closed her eyes and listened to the morning bluebird who had recently built his spring nest picturesquely in a tree just outside the dining room window. She smiled as she depicted the sound of the bluebird that stood out against the other feathery chatter along the telephone line that ran along the street. Is there something particularly pleasant you care to share, Betty? asked Alan inquisitively. Hmm? said Betty, her mind still outside with the small birds whose sole purpose was to welcome spring. She dreamily opened her eyes, but snapped to attention when she read Alan's expression that demanded a better answer. I mean, I was just thinking how lovely it was that spring has finally arrived. It means the morning songbirds and the windows open. Hmm, squawked Alan. Spring is messy and muddy. It tracks the dirt into the house as well as the smell of moss until the ground fully thaws. He clicked out of his window of his computer. Furthermore, you and your insistence on planting and digging in the dirt is all the more reason to dread the season. He lifted his spoon and placed his napkin neatly in his lap. Lest you forget, mud is the primordial sludge from which lesser creatures were spawn. Stick your fingers in that, Betty. Really, Alan, everyone plants in the spring. Besides, I wear the gloves you bought me last year. If it weren't for me, your nails would be a wreck. Yes, thank you, she sighed. She watched him eat. He dipped his teaspoon delicately into the thick yogurt first. Then the yogurt spoon grazed the surface of the granola, making sure it received a light coating and spooned it into his mouth. When he'd repeated the process and consumed the two bowls in such fashion, he ate the fruit all on its own. Alan said it cleansed the palate to eat things in order. Betty often had to control herself. She had mad moments where she just wanted to mix the three ingredients together and serve it, 
leaving Alan little choice than to taste something the way the rest of the world did. She glanced at the clock, the quote-unquote time of scrutiny, as she often referred to it in her own head, was nearly at a close. Alan would soon be in departure mode. She calculated his demeanor, took a deep breath, and popped the question that had her up before the alarm. Alan, dear, I spoke with Trudy the other day, she opened. Alan didn't react badly to her statement. She felt it safe to push the edge of the envelope. She and the children will be visiting my sister in two weeks. Good, then you can stop over and get the chance to see them, said Alan, without skipping a beat. Betty sighed in an attempt to hold in her composure. But Alan, they've never been here before. Our own grandchildren. Wouldn't it be nice to have a barbecue on the deck? They wouldn't have to come in the house. They could stay outside. That way there won't be any mess. Alan closed his laptop with a slight slam, forgetting to exit out of his last times window, which was so unlike him. Answer me this. What if it rains? What if one of the children, I cringe to think, the baby, has to use the bathroom, Betty? Have you any idea how many germs one toddler can carry? Have you? It's out of the question. I'm a generous man, Betty. I don't forbid you from seeing your family. But a man's home is his castle, and I refuse to be invaded by germs. Alan swiftly placed his laptop into his briefcase, folded his trench coat over his arm, and went out the door without a second glance. Betty listened for his car to turn the corner of the driveway onto their small, quiet street before she let herself cry. Part 3. Abigail Abigail stared at the large red glowing numbers of the silent clock. In a way, she wished she had bought one that ticked after all. It would have at least been a companion on nights like this one that she was spending. The clock read 318. Tim still wasn't home. Her mind wandered the gambit of possibilities. On Thursdays, he typically worked late at the office. It was his custom to stop by the local watering hole on his way home from work and have a beer or two with friends. Lately, the Thursday excursions had bled into Fridays as well. She counted the days in her head to while away the darkness and realized something. He hadn't been home before 2 a.m. on a Thursday or Friday in three months. When he did stumble in, he was often so drunk that he never made it to bed. Friday and Saturday mornings, she would rise early out of concern and find him passed out on the living room couch, still wearing his jacket and shoes. He would snore until late afternoon and often pass on dinner, thanks to a two-day bender hangover. Abigail could see that her weekend was shaping up in a similar repeat of events. She rolled onto her back and huffed under her breath in anger. Self-loathing followed. She hated how she worried about him. Why couldn't she just go back to sleep like other, less caring wives, she wondered to herself. Instead, her weary, sleep-deprived mind conjured up gruesome car wreck scenes. Sometimes they included other accident victims he hit while driving and drunk. And at other times, it was a scene where her idiot husband got what he deserved in the end by colliding headfirst into an embankment or guardrail. In either case, the outcome was never good. The phone rang, sending her heart into her throat. 
Hello? Abigail, came a scratchy, throated Tim on the other end. Are you all right? You don't sound good, she said as she sat up in bed, a shock of fear rippling from her ear to the rest of her body. Can you get to an ATM tonight? he asked, sounding terrible. Abigail hesitated. Um, yes. Why? I need you to post bail, Abby. Bring the money to the police station when you've got it. He paused, but there was something in the way he was breathing that made her wait to ask the next question. Twenty-six years of marriage had told her to wait. There was more to tell her, and she wasn't going to like what was coming. Abby, bail is a thousand dollars, and... He paused again. Well, I'll need you to take it out of one of your little funds. I'm cleaned out at the moment. Abigail sat numb for a moment. Never having a job of her own, save the hard work and dedication of wife and mother, Abby had little say in the family finances, nor had she cared to. Her generation had been content to barter, whether it be cooking, cleaning, or sex, in exchange for the protection and family leadership of her husband. Abby ran through the small nest eggs from which she saved money by clipping coupons and budgeting. Finally, she found his requested sum in her Christmas club account at the credit union. Tim, I can't get that kind of money until the bank opens tomorrow, she said sympathetically. Use your debit card, directed her husband. I won't sit here all night with these, these people, Ab. Abigail could hear several people vomiting at once in the background, and she bit her lip. I don't have a debit card, dear. You said last year that I didn't need one. Abigail was left with the abrupt sound of a dial tone in what would be just the beginning to many long nights ahead of her. Part 4. Wine and Candy Marie, Abigail, and Betty had this strange connection to one another that none of them could explain. In times of high stress or great sadness, they seemed to know what the other was feeling. No matter what either of them was doing or where they were, when the call came, they gathered. They usually went to Abigail's house because Tim, in his late seventies, still worked late most nights. Betty brought the wine and Marie brought the snacks, primarily consisting of chocolates and candy. The women ate and drank, sometimes sipping the wine through candied straws, sometimes pairing the wine with chocolate, and never once thinking of waistlines or hangovers or whether they were too loud. No topic of conversation was taboo when these women came together. While it often surrounded the usual round table of sex, men, and local gossip, and typically in that order, there was always laughter. To say that it was drunken laughter would have been exaggerating the night when they first mentioned murder. The three women were in a frenzy of a good rant about their husbands when Marie let it spill from her lips first. I could just kill him, she shouted. Abigail laughed deep from her belly turning it into a fit of giggles that left little room for her to breathe. Betty soon followed in the contagion of laughter. It was Marie who didn't join them. Instead, she stared blankly into the flickering candle on the table. Soon the other two began to sober. Marie, you'd have to be pretty creative, don't you think? 
asked Abigail. Betty followed up with, After all, if you're going to kill him, you'd better make it look like an accident. No use going to all that trouble and not getting his life insurance policy. And suddenly, none of them were laughing. Instead, they were looking at one another square in the face. In a moment of absolute stone-cold reality, the question entered each of their minds at the same time, and they collectively wondered in the light of the flame, could it really be done? Part 5. Murder by Numbers As was his custom on Friday nights, Earl took his bath with a bottle of beer in one hand and a copy of Field and Stream in the other. Halfway through, he called Marie in to wash his back. When they had first been married, this had been his subtle way to get her into the bath with him, followed by a night of lovemaking. But after years of marriage, the highlight of the evening was the good buzz that came from the effect of hot water on his blood pressure as it pumped the alcohol through his bloodstream. Earl called Marie in at about half-past eight, and as loyal as Winston, she obliged him by coming in with a clean washcloth and a towel. "'Sit up, dear, and I'll wash your back,' she said flatly. The water splashed up his neck and dripped down as she scrubbed. "'Ow!' he complained. "'Not so hard!' "'Oh, don't be such a baby,' she chided. "'If you're good, I'll bring you a snack while you soak.' "'A snack?' Earl beamed. "'Yes, just a minute and I'll be right back.' From the other room, Earl heard Marie put on the stereo. Glenn Miller and his band were singing some sappy love song that Marie loved. He groaned. If this was her way of being romantic, he would rather have the snack, he thought to himself. And why did she have to play it so loud? He made a note to get her hearing checked as soon as he could. When Marie returned, she handed Earl a plate with the most tempting toast he'd ever seen. The edges were black as coal. The rest were light as volcanic rock and nearly as dark. She'd melted butter into the nooks, which he particularly enjoyed. Without hesitation, Earl took a bite. He crunched loudly and smiled at Marie. My God, woman, I think you've finally done it. Toast like my mother's. How did you do it? I stumbled upon her secret, dear. Marie moved over to the sink and plugged in the shiny box in her hand. You see, your mother must have held bread over the flame of the stove and nearly set herself on fire to get it the way you liked it. Our smoke alarm went off three times from the smoke before I got it right. I don't care if you have to do your impersonation of Joan of Arc, as long as you make it like this from now on. Earl belched and handed half of his buttered charcoal to Winston. Marie set her jaw angrily. Now you know the secret. And Marie, I won't settle for less. Flipping the switch of the shiny metal toaster, Marie looked at her husband with deep loathing. She carried the tiny box over to the bathtub, where her partner for life sat looking like a wrinkled prune. You're right, dear. We certainly won't be needing the toaster any longer. From outside Earl and Marie's house, a flash of the house lights burst and then completely went dark. There was an eerie electrical snap that one might have heard if they had been standing on the sidewalk, but Glenn Miller had drowned out the initial surge, making it indiscernible. In the cool black night air, 
all the neighbors would say for sure was that Winston the bloodhound began to howl desperately and could not be consoled. On the same night, Betty had been informed that her husband was bringing home some clients for cocktails. With only thirty minutes left to spare before the guests arrived, she scrambled to take emergency appetizers out from the freezer and warm the oven. Changing out of her khaki pants and sport shirt, she donned a silk sheath dress and slid her bare feet into a pair of black pumps, just as the alarm for the front door had opened. She made her way downstairs in a casual entrance, cool and collected on the exterior, while lists of bar stock and timer minutes of the oven played nervously in her mind. Betty was used to giving award-winning performances for her husband's clients. Truly, she missed her vocation. As she worked a room, remembering names, anniversaries, political affiliations, and drink preferences of individuals as well as couples, Betty should have won an Oscar. In truth, she despised nearly every one of her clients for whom her husband worked. One of the wives on that particular evening was admiring the photo collection proudly displayed on the grand piano. The woman asked Betty about the people captured in each frame. A trickle of sentiment gleaned in Betty's voice when she got to the ones of her grandchildren, the product of her first marriage that had left her widowed. From out of nowhere, Alan arrived at the point of conversation where the wife asked if they came to stay with Betty and Alan often. Alan, in his fake vibrato laugh, simply said, Oh, no, Betty and I have velvet curtains and a silk couch from Italy. Our house is no place for children. Besides, he paused, the germ factor's so high. At the suggestion, the client's wife appeared taken slightly aback in revulsion. I have my girl come in twice a week with bleach, she replied proudly. And that's just for Bruce and myself. One just can't be too careful nowadays. Just turn on the news and there seems to be some pandemic. Our homes are our fortresses, you know. Alan clearly had an ally in this woman and knew it before he ever walked over to Betty. Betty felt as though she'd been T-boned in a car wreck and excused herself. Alan was soon at her side as she began to take glasses from the cabinet and place them on the bar. As she chatted with an older gentleman about the personalities of single malt scotch, Alan angrily grabbed the glasses from her hand and wiped them, spraying each martini glass with bleach and water, mixing and wiping them as, until the glasses shined. The man at the bar looked puzzled. The bar was impeccable, and Betty could do nothing but smile. As she retrieved the appetizers from the kitchen, she heard Alan apologize for his wife. She just never understood presentation. She comes from the east side. In my younger days, I had images of my fair lady, but my age has allowed me to concede that it's just too late for her. Betty set the platter of cheeses and toast points on the bar with a clumsy thud. Betty, dear, Alan feigned, make us some of your lovely martinis, will you, dear? I have to get the door. Taking a separate glass from the cabinet, Betty went into the kitchen. In her silent rage, she poured bleach, bathroom cleaner, and a healthy dose of strong gin into an ice shaker. Taking a separate glass from the cabinet, Betty went into the kitchen. In her silent rage, she poured bleach, 
the bathroom cleaner and a healthy dose of strong gin into the shaker with ice. She shook the contents and carefully poured it into the glass, topping it with a twist of citrus. As guests entered, ever the showplace wife, she handed Alan his drink and toasted his success. Within fifteen minutes, Alan would commit the ultimate social faux pas and pass out before all of his guests. Abigail received Tim's desperate call from deep in the bowels of the state penitentiary. He was sobbing on the other end of the phone, blathering on about something a cellmate, something called a shink, something about laundry duty, and something about getting out. Abigail sat stoic and listened to the man who screamed within his cage. Financially strapped, miserable, and standing on the precipice of freedom, Abigail simply murdered her husband in the simplest way. She simply reciprocated her husband's most recent interaction, and she hung up the phone. Part 6. Blue Ribbon Article The Michigan State Fair was in the throes of summer. Abigail, Marie, and Betty stood grinning from ear to ear for the front page of the Detroit Free Press, holding their blue ribbons for organic tomatoes, set precedence for the fair's first three-way tie. When interviewed, the women announced that they would be putting their winnings to their backyard victory garden. When asked their secret to their award-winning produce, they said they planted their seeds and tilled their soil all in the dear memory of their husbands. The three women smiled for the cameras, their victory garden noted for contributing the highest amount of produce to the battered and abused women's shelter. Deep in the layers of the rich black earth lay Tim, Alan, and Earl, who for the first time in their lives devoted their remains to the betterment of their wives. With the exception of Winston, who, for weeks following his master's demise, feasted on the liver and heart of the men six feet under, sautéed with onion and herbs by the women who survived them, and fed to their loyal hound. Part 7. Certified Madness Sean Murphy, an agent for the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality, sat in a little diner at the corner of Haggerty and Union, reading his newspaper, draining his third cup of weak coffee. With the blue heron nesting season over, there was less of a rush to check on the part-time summer help, who were likely sunbathing in the back of the pickup trucks anyhow. Little water sample work would be done until the heat wave broke. He'd spent too many summers managing natural resource college majors on internship to expect any data collection once the dog days of summer had settled in. Instead, he took to catching up on the local news. That was when he came across the charming picture of three elderly women on the arts and entertainment page. The caption under the photo read, Octogenarians turn blues into blue ribbons. As Sean read on, his eye came across the unique title of the ladies' winning category, Heirloom Organics. He sat back and let Linda, the waitress, pour him a fourth cup, whereupon he added cream as he searched for where the ladies were from. 
After reading it twice, he realized that the article never mentioned the hometown of the trio. He surmised that three widows might ask a reporter to omit that kind of information from an article. The notion jogged his memory of another summer a few years back. Seemed that a family attempting to homestead was using human waste to fertilize crops and selling them as organic. It wasn't until a local outbreak of E. coli was traced to the farm that the local authorities and Farm Bureau ever knew. Sean looked at the picture of the beaming ladies. He scanned the reporter's byline and decided to make a few calls from his cell. Seven people had been hospitalized in the last episode of Organic Gardening. It couldn't hurt just to pay the widows a friendly visit to their local victory garden. If the worst the old biddies were doing was emptying their pans of cat litter and table scraps into the soil, he'd look the other way. He promised himself. By lunch, he'd bullied the young reporter on the other end of the line to give him the address to the garden, and he was back in the green state-issued truck heading down the back roads. He pulled up to a large plot of land with a small drive and a converted garage-made greenhouse. At first, it appeared that no one was around. As he casually poked his nose over the ranch rail made from twisted branches, but soon a woman wearing a large straw hat tied under her chin with brightly colored silk appeared carrying a basket of greens in her arm. She smiled kindly at Sean and invited him in past the garden gate. Are you from the newspaper too? asked Marie. No, no, I've just come to admire the garden. I read all about it in the paper this morning. I see, smiled Marie but her keen eyes went to the white patch on the man's shirt, to that of the brazen label on the side of the man's truck. Marie knew trouble when it came knocking at her door, or rather, at her garden gate. Come right in and have a seat. My friends and I were just about to finish making soap for the women's shelter. Would you like to come and take a look? Get a sample for your wife, maybe? Betty was just slicing the lavender bars, when I came to pick some of the greens for lunch. Can I help you? I'm a fan of gardening and I'd love a tour, Sean said, trying to sound as disarming as possible. Let me just call the girls. I'm sure they'd love to meet you and we'll all give you a tour. Fantastic, replied Sean. Marie left Sean near the tripods of sugar snap peas and soon returned with Betty and Abigail in tow. They were all talking to one another in hushed whispers, but it soon turned to soft giggles, as if the women weren't senior citizens, but rather childish schoolgirls. The ladies introduced themselves. After a short introduction, Marie took the lead. First, I will take you to my section of the garden where we grow produce for ourselves and the local women's and children's shelter. Did you know, Mr. Murphy, that the greatest number of homeless people in the country consists of children? And why, for goodness sakes? Because their fathers abandon the family. It's just terrible, don't you think? I agree, nodded Sean, clearly bombarded by her statistical analysis while walking through rows and rows of vegetables. These vegetable beds are incredible. He kneeled over a large raised bed of quinoa grain. It was only knee-high, 
but it, it had already begun to take its bright red color thanks to the heat of the last few days. I used a carbon base, if you will, she said matter-of-fact. Marie knelt down near Sean. You see, I grind up kitchen scraps and eggshells from the day, and top them with large amounts of toast I burn at breakfast and lunch. My late husband loved the stuff, and I just can't seem to break the habit of making some. Instead of putting it in the garden, why don't you enjoy it, asked Sean. Oh, no, can't stand the stuff. I just crumple it up with the eggshells and feed it to the garden instead. She laughed lightly. Sean laughed with her. He couldn't see the harm in eggshells and burned toast. Abigail picked up where Marie left off and led Sean to the herb garden. He noted the pungent smell of lemon verbena as he accidentally stepped on a huge bushel that toppled over the edges of a huge galvanized container. The same went for the cinnamon basil, which cascaded in strands down its tall container and along the stone walkway. Abby took a spray bottle out of her gardener's canvas pouch and gave a few squirts into the large raised beds of plants labeled mandrake root. Sean raised an eyebrow, and Abby smiled coyly. It's not the real stuff, you know. Mandrake root is really the stuff of legends, but the teenagers love the idea, especially around Halloween. She gave the strange, gruesome-looking tubers a spray, again from her bottle. Fertilizer? Sean asked indifferently. Gin, replied Abigail. My husband always said it was the cure for everything, and he was right. I couldn't seem to get the mildew off of the root stems, so in his honor I thought I'd try it. Darn if he wasn't right. Sean laughed as she led him back to the garage greenhouse where steam from the soap making was fogging up the garage windows. As his boots walked along the path, he noticed how one step crunched under his left foot. He lifted it in alarm, noting, I hope that wasn't an earring or something from one of you ladies. Upon bending down, Sean noted that what he had stepped on was shiny, much like a piece of any one of the lady's jewelry. He picked the object up between his index finger and thumb, giving it a roll and holding it up in the sunlight. What the hell is this? he said aloud, without thinking. Marie and Abigail joined him in the inspection only to discover, to their instant mutual horror, that Sean Murphy had apparently stumbled upon a human tooth, complete with a gold filling. Oh, that's where Betty left it, chimed Abigail, a little too enthusiastic to be natural. Pardon? asked Sean. Uh, yes, Marie joined in, catching on to Abby's story quickly. Betty was out gardening the other day and complained that she lost a tooth, and uh, you found it for her. She'll be so happy not to have lost that gold filling. Sean shuddered to think of the old, deteriorating gums from whom this tooth might have come. It was quite large, he thought to himself, for a woman's mouth, and looked at the two women skeptically. Please, just show it to Betty. She can tell you if it's hers or not, added Abby for good measure. The unnerved Sean Murphy agreed and headed into the greenhouse where the steam and smoke of the soap stung his eyes and nose. A muted chatter came from somewhere in the corner, and he squinted to make out where his two lovely hosts had gone to. 
a third woman appeared at his side, red-faced and sweating. "'I'm Betty. The girl said you found my missing tooth. How nice of you. Why don't you just come over here and sit down for a moment? I'd love to pay you my thanks over a cup of tea and perhaps some soap to take home.' Sean was about to decline. The stinging of the steam and chemicals was beginning to get the better of his demeanor when he felt three strong hands pull him to what his tearing, watering eyes looked like a chair or some kind of seat. The image of the chair faded into that of a large cavern or pot as they drew him closer, and he tried to dig his feet into the floor. From the intensity of the heat and the residue of the soap, Sean was alarmed to find that his feet slid like butter on a pan across the floor. He began to protest. Ladies, really, I have to be going. You're going all right, cackled one woman from somewhere in the steam. Right into the lie, giggled another voice from behind him. A good hard push from behind him sent him sailing head first into the boiling pot of soap. That's the problem with men, said the third voice. They always lie. Fits of wicked female cackling echoed off the cement stone walls and high glass windows. Sean Murphy's curdled scream only took seconds to die down as the boiling content slowly rid him of his skin and tissues, layer by layer. It would take hours before his bones would be stripped. Never believing in the notion of wasting anything if it could be helped, the ladies strained out Sean's bones the next day. Grinding them with mortal and pestle on Sunday afternoons, the man from the Department of Environmental Quality devoted his marrow to the perimeter of the Women's Rescue Victory Garden, where a new ingredient was listed as a pest repellent. A small sign for donors and press alike to read simply stated, bone meal.